0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come.
2: Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Jane Costin is back with us from Australia. And of course, ProPublica's Darylind. Uh, I wanted to talk today about the uh, pre-college debate that has been roiling the Democratic Party uh, for sort of for years now, but that like heated up again kind of recently in, in, in the primary. And uh, so I don't know, like show of hands. Who, who thinks it's a good idea? I don't I do not do good
3: ideas. <laughs> no.
2: No, no. Dara has no takes.
3: I No. <laughs> I'm, I'm, in fact, like contractually obligated to stop just short of takes. Oh, no right takes. Now. All right. But no, but I think, I mean, I, I think that it's kind of broadly worth saying that we are officially in the kind of candidates trying to make distinctions between each other, among each other at all costs stage of the Democratic primary, which has overlapped in some cases with like, useful tit-for-tat on transparency, on, you know, various, like, suitability of candidates' backgrounds, et cetera, but which has actually, like, reignited this free college debate, which had gotten a little bit buried as a potential grounds for contrast during the whole Medicare for All, like, rise and fall, and does actually speak to some issues that are relevant beyond—like, unlike the Medicare for All debate, which is largely a question of, okay— You know, how important do you think paying for things is Mm -hmm. and how much do you want to soak the rich to get it done? Free college is both interesting as an education debate, as a like, what are we saying about the requisite credentials you have to have to succeed in the job market, and also as a broader debate about universal versus means-tested public
1: good. It also seems to be it is a statement— not necessarily a belief system or something that can be put into practice. If you say that you are for free college, that is more a, like, that is a symbol that you are for the kind of, the widening of universal goods. Mm -hmm. The, you know, the idea, you know, the argument of, like, we have public roads that are accessible to everyone. We have public parks that are accessible to everyone. We have public libraries that are accessible to everyone. Why should our public institutions of higher learning not also be accessible to everyone and it's interesting because there's kind of the like the micro of how this would actually work or actually look which we can look at some countries that have tried it but again because the united states is a singular entity and i don't mean that in the like woo woo america way i mean that like you know, you cannot map what New Zealand did onto the United States for a bazillion different I reasons. I mean, you could
3: try, but you'd have to paste New Zealand a bunch of times to cover the
1: requisite landmass. Yes, is part and of the New problem. Zealand they would get very upset about this. But you know, but there's also kind of the macro of like when we talk about free college, here's what we're also talking about.
2: Yeah. So I, I mean, I do think it's worth talking a little bit about the specifics. Sure. So because, no, absolutely. Because yeah. something that happens here is it does tend to um, go off into the realm of like.
3: How do you feel about public goods generally?
2: Yeah, Yeah. conceptual debates. Um, And and it's worth talking about what's really being proposed here in practice, uh, because I think that gets at some stuff that has not really been explored correctly. Um, But so in the United States of America— the federal government, by and large, does not run colleges and universities, uh, which is different from many countries. Uh, most other Western countries are smaller than the United States, um, and they they do run institutions of higher education. In some cases, they're free; in other cases, they're not. But but in all cases, the National government is the primary actor in this space. Uh, In the United States, that's not true. So what's really been proposed in legislation is that the federal government should create a grant program that will give states money so that if the states want to eliminate tuition at their public colleges and universities, the federal government will pay some, I think it's like two-thirds in Bernie's bill, of the cost of doing that. I mean, if if you are both a member of Congress and you believe in the cause of free college and you know that Congress doesn't run colleges and universities. And you have tr-
3: no interest in, like, nationalizing the universities.
2: Right. It's actually a, a plausible legislative initiative to put forward. But I do think it's worth asking, like, if it passed, how many states would do it? Um, You know, we've seen with the uh, Medicaid expansion debate, which is much more generous and I think more of a no-brainer politically, Medicaid expansion gets universal support from Democrats uh, because it's like free money and some support from Republicans. So it has happened in many states, though by no means all of them. But like I really doubt that like any state where Republicans controlled any branch of state legislature would agree to raise taxes to kick in more money for more subsidization of colleges and universities in exchange for some extra-federal money for that purpose. Like, I don't think that has, like, any appeal at all.
1: No, and especially because we've seen, um, you know, Republican-controlled legislatures trying to crack down on public universities like the University of Wisconsin system, Mm -hmm. um, efforts to do the same in university systems across the country. I mean, part of that is a whole philosophical concept of what education is and why higher learning might be bad or but also, it, but like, also but it, like, in like, general,
2: like, Republicans don't like to spend money. No,
1: and and, it's and not, if they're
2: going to spend money on anything, as you're saying, it's, it's not going to be that.
1: It's not going to be that. It's just not. And I also think that um, there's kind of some of this seems to be about you know, the idea of free college and not necessarily actually free college, but Dar- I think you had— you
3: No, know, I mean, I think that the other question here is beyond, like, what state legislatures choose to do, how is that—how is this going to impact the choices that colleges and universities make and who to admit, right? Because, like, it is not exactly plausible that you're going to see— the elimination of tuition even for, like, international students coming in, right? Right. That is probably going to be an exception, even if you're extremely generous in how you're defining, like, who can get free college in the U.S. And we've seen over the last couple of decades that some colleges in states where they're getting less money from the state and where they have to be more, you know, need conscious in admissions, one of the ways they've done that without sacrificing prestige is by appealing more to the international student audience and by having people who can... Conveniently have to pay full tuition, but who also help the college come off as more cosmopolitan, expose, yeah. you know, in-state students to more perspectives, that kind of thing. So it's definitely worth asking, you know, in a a like small, you know, I'm I'm thinking of Miami of Ohio because I, you know, like I have family who live in Oxford and went there, but like a Miami of Ohio, a small public school that thinks of itself as elite and may not be getting as much support from the state as it used to, like, to what extent is it going to change not just what it does but who it selects based on who can pay their full way, you know, above and beyond what money they're getting from the state? Right. So,
2: I mean, so we're talking in practice, we're, were one of these bills to pass, about free college for blue states, right? Like, solidly Democratic states might say yes to this money. And Although there's— Although
3: even so, like, the state of California has, like, deprived the CSU system pretty badly right. over the last well, few Right. Well, then
2: days. there's a question in my mind, right? It would be a tough call, you know, because you would still have to say it's like whenever I hear this sort of, like, argument, you know, if it's Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg that are coming up, they're like, oh, this is regressive. Like, I don't want to pay for Donald Trump's kids to go to college. Like, I think that's a little bit ridiculous, Right. But when you get into the specifics, right, you are sitting there in the state legislature of New Jersey right? And there are different bills that are coming forward. And it's state government, so you, you need to do balanced budgets. And somebody is, we should kick in whatever it is, a billion dollars, and then we'll get two billion federal funding, and we can make Rutgers have no tuition. And then somebody else is saying, no, let's take that billion dollars and let's use it on improving transportation projects to Atlantic City, right? There you you get into the question, not of like, in principle, would it be a good idea for New Jersey? Jersey to make higher education free, but like given all of the potential public service claims that you could make in your state, how high on the list is free college really? Like how important is this? And that's where it's really less convincing to me, right? In the federal government, you're sort of playing with – I don't want to say like – Money is no constraint. But there's there's a little bit of a funny money factor uh, w- when you're talking about national politics. And there well, isn't. because you're allowed to run
3: deficits and because this is a way in which money is not currently being spent. So it's a little bit harder to compare it to – it's not like you're used to running down in the annual appropriations bills the same fights between this pot of money and other pots of money. It's something right.
2: – Well, and the big federal budget commitments, right, like Medicare, Medicaid, like that stuff runs on this kind of autopilot mode, right? But like it's in states, it's like you got to do everything kind of in the mix, right? So it's like, well, we could put money into renovating high schools. So like they're nicer and they have better facilities. We could put nurses in more schools or we could cut tuition. And like the reason states have disinvested in a lot of cases from higher education is not just like Republicans don't like to spend money. But even Democrats, when they're looking and they're like, what am I going to fight for here? What is my bottom line that I have to preserve? They've tended to pick Medicaid, uh, things that have frontline employees, things where the option of, hey, if we ask people to pay tuition, they will do it, like aren't an option. I don't know. Like if you tell low-income kids, right, like, well, we're not going to give you food stamps, then they just go hungry. If you tell middle class kids you're going to have to take out a loan to pay for the University of Michigan, they take out the loan. Right? Like, you you, you can do it in a way you can't with a lot of other public services.
1: I also think, and we can get into this a little bit more, that one of the challenges here is that, like, the idea of free college is responding to something, which is that college and universities are really expensive. But it doesn't seem to get at the, you know, the exact mechanisms as to why. Mm-hmm. And part of that, I think there's the, – the conservative response to this has been a lot about, you know, okay – so colleges and universities, the argument is, are so expensive because these universities are aware that many people who apply to these universities will not technically have to pay full price. Like, you know, University well, of Michigan— they Well, won't, they won't be paying full price up front. Right, exactly. You know, the University of Michigan can say that its out-of-state tuition is, what, uh, $3 billion, as I remember. Um, but, you know, they're aware that— People like me will apply for Pell Grants or apply for student loans. So, at first, I will not be paying the $3 billion that it costs. So, essentially, the actual tuition is almost irrelevant from this argument but and they're saying that like if the government just got out of the business of you know of Pell grants sort and of supporting this then the requisite costs of colleges and universities would therefore drop because they know that they couldn't you know if you were told the sticker price of attending any fine institution were the actual sticker price that you would need to pay people wouldn't do it but I think, the, I think that that is something I'm interested in getting kind of the mechanisms because, you know, of how college is paid for, how college should be paid for, because that seems to be, you know, a lot of people are responding to the idea of free college, not just because necessarily they're like, I should not have to pay anything to go to college or universities, but I am paying way too much to support myself to go to a college or university. Right.
3: I mean, I think it's I think it's worth locating this not just in the rise of tuition but in the like rise of very high student debt carried right. through the like first decades of a career and you know i think for you and my cohort in particular jane those of us who like went into college assuming a booming mid 2000s economy where like we would be able to make back our tuition money very quickly and then graduated into the great recession right. the gap between you know, what you're told a college degree will be able to right. bring you on the labor market and therefore what you can, like, the kind of debt that you can incur at the age of 18 because it won't follow you the rest of your life, and then the actual, like, prospects that we face, that, I, you know, that I think has really shaped the the life choices of, like, an entire subgeneration of people in a way that makes this an extremely salient political issue because it really is, like, Can I do the things I want to with the next 10 years of my life? Well,
2: it's worth distinguishing, you know, uh, between a few different cases here, right? Right. Because, like, what Jane is talking about really is, like, what accounts for the large spending volume?
3: Yes, in higher
2: education, right? Separate from the question of who pays the tab for it. It's like, yes. why is the tab so high? And if you look at um, uh, Lumina Foundation's data on this, right, they can show, you can look at sort of three different buckets of things. One is, like, community colleges and non-selective institutions. They have actually not increased their spending that much over, over time. And in community colleges, in some cases, it's gone down. And their tuition increases clearly have just been driven by state Funding decisions, right? That when they cut back, tuition goes up, but what is being offered is a fairly cost controlled thing. Then, when you look at private institutions, right, where state government decision making is irrelevant, their spending volumes have gone up the most, right? So, institutions that are operating in a basically a market situation, they are choosing as a business strategy to become more expensive, more high-end products. And it seems to be working for them in most cases. I mean, some small private liberal arts colleges are now
3: getting into trouble as we have fewer teenagers. You're focusing on spending. It's worth, like, pointing out that this isn't just a luxury pricing issue. This isn't just a, like, we are going to market ourselves as elite by charging more money. It's a we are going to offer more in the way of luxury goods and amenities to our students to appeal to them as consumers. Yeah, just
2: more stuff. I mean, we're going to get the best
3: professors. And then you see
2: in selective public institutions, right, a a middle ground version of this where there have been cuts in state funding, but where the tuition increases account for more than 100 percent of that, right? And this is, again, the the basic calculus that selective institutions seem to be making is that we want to increase – essentially, we want to get stronger applicants, right? Mm-hmm. That like the way to do that is to make our school in some sense better. That we we want to invest more in quality, get stronger applicants, become more prestigious because what like people want, I mean people want a lot of things, but like, Having having a school whose attendees have very high average SAT scores is prestigious, and that tends to attract more high SAT score applicants, which tends to generate alumni who are richer and can donate more money to your school. And it's important to understand, like, that's the sector of American higher education that people in in the... chattering classes care most about but it's actually like a minority yeah. of the institutions
1: it, right it, it really has marked you know i think that something that we don't talk about enough in these conversations is that in general when we're talking about colleges and universities we're talking about like places where people who are journalists went or wanted to go and were unfairly waitlisted but <sighs> most people do not you know, most people do not go to those institutions or have to go to those institutions or want to go to those institutions. I do think that
3: the free college debate has this a little better than some of the like college culture debates. I right. think people, are generally, people are generally pretty good at calibrating to, okay, what are the schools that, you know, if I didn't go to a public public school in the state that I grew up in, what were the schools that I would have gone to? And those are still like elite public right. universities. But it's it is still worth thinking about those as like, you know, once you get into the kind of what I pay for Donald Trump's kid's model, like, separate from the question of whether you believe all colleges need to be four-year liberal arts schools or whether we should be treating those degrees better, like, if you're going to have a four-year degree liberal arts school, I think most of the people who are involved on either side of the free college debate would like it to be as high quality four-year liberal arts school as possible and so looking at some of the elite public universities does make sense as a model for how would we want, you know, what kind of school would we want to come out of this and what kind of choices would it have to make to get there?
2: Right, although I also do think, right, It, it, it again, would go into the state legislators' calculus, right? Right. So like in the Northeast, right, the tendency is for the public universities, even the sort of the flagship campuses, to be relatively low prestige and for there to be lots and lots and lots of private colleges and and universities, right? So like Massachusetts is a huge higher education state, right? But University of Massachusetts at Amherst is— the second most prestigious college in the town of Amherst, right? And so in a state like that, I think taking the free tuition offer looks really, really compelling, right? Because like the sort of crown jewels of, like, attracting smart people to the Boston area are still there, right? Like, fancy higher education as a Massachusetts export product would be unaffected by this. You would get money from the federal government. You could help out working in middle-class Massachusetts residents by giving them useful, free, mass college education, and, like, there you are, right? I I think it's different if you were talking about a state like Michigan or like Ohio, where the flagship public university is also the major university in the state.
1: And one of the largest employers in the state. Biggest employers, but also, I mean, a a magnet of human
2: capital, a center of research, right? Those are not—like, the University of Michigan is not just a— Educa- a, a place that people who are born in Michigan go to right. school and they learn some things. It's like a, an important centerpiece institution for the whole state. And I would worry that y- an institution like that would not want to limit its financial resources in any possible way, right? Like that that that, that sort of climbing up the high end is just still a compelling value proposition.
3: Well, and that also c- creates some of those state legislature politics, like my understanding is that in Wisconsin, for example, people who have actually grown up in like working in middle class environments in in Wisconsin don't necessarily see like Madison as the kind of the thing they all aspire to, both for kind of culture war reasons and because it has the reputation of bringing in a lot of people from out of state who are snooty. Right. And so if you have this flagship public university that is by, you know, U.S. News and World Report metrics a cut above every other public university in your state, but— your kids and your constituents' kids don't necessarily aspire to go there. Why are you going to be cutting them a check?
2: Right. It's just, it's here. Let, let's take a break, and then we should come back to
3: debt.
4: Support for The Weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together, or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds.
2: Dare mention, you know, student debt, which is like a huge subject of concern for younger people, and I think a source of intergenerational incomprehension in in a lot of stances. It's also been Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, I put on the table, these student debt cancellation plans that strike me as very odd in that they, they are aimed to sort of cancel debt Pretty much indiscriminately, right? So Warren lightly means tests it, so the highest income people wouldn't wouldn't get it. Uh, Sanders not at all. But what I think is really weird about these plans is that they don't distinguish between what institutions the debt was accrued at at all. So like neither of these politicians, nor anybody else who I'm aware of, has ever suggested that the federal government should pay to make Harvard Business School free. Uh, But we have two Democratic contenders who seem to be saying that newly minted Harvard MBAs should have their debt canceled within no forward-looking change. And I don't understand at all why you would do that, why you think that's
3: a good idea. I think that the the forward-looking change here would be free college itself. And I, I also think that, frankly. If you think about the fact that coming up to the Great Recession and even through it, although the extent to which kind of like Gen Z actually bought into this is TBD and looks outlook looks negative for it, like <laughs> the narrative was that college was the ticket to upper, upward income mobility and that therefore – You needed – if you were at all, you know, educationally attuned and if you cared about your future, you applied to the most prestigious college you possibly could. Mm -hmm. And if you got in there, you found a way to make it work. And Mm so I think that, you know, if you were going to take college seriously as a ticket for upward mobility, we're going to accept that, yes, people with more elite degrees do command a higher wage premium and therefore are probably better off. But if the people who we're trying to help are the people who are carrying – you know, who who bought into that promise and right. who are saddled with massive debt as a result, that's not necessarily just going to be—you know, you don't necessarily want to help the working-class kid who went to a, like, second-tier school or, a, you know, or an elite public school or whatever less than the working-class kid who— took their family into debt in order to afford to go to a top-tier school because they'd been told that that was the way they were going to secure their family's future.
1: Right, exactly. Because I think that, you know, in the ideal, you wouldn't want to continue the the stratification that higher education is supposed to, arguably, discourage or reduce. You know, the idea is that you're supposed to be able to come from, you know, Fruitport, Michigan— and go to the University of Michigan, be the first person in, in your family to go to college, and then go on to the University of Michigan Law School, and then go on to do, I don't know, something awesome or less awesome, but, it, you know, something that's <laughs> super cool. But, you know, the I think that, like— I don't really buy the argument of like debt, especially because you don't want to get people into we should forgive this person's debt, but this person, I don't know. Like at a certain point, but the, the real issue I have is what, regardless of whose debt gets forgiven by whom, what does that actually look like? Like if someone told me like, Jane, you don't have to keep paying Navient a, whatever amount I pay them a month, your loans are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Like, what would that look like en masse? Right? Well, and there also is the the related kind of, like, individual behavioral question of
3: there are, are kind of dispositional differences between people who graduate with six figures in debt and go, okay, the only thing I can do with my next however many years is to pay off as much of this as possible, and the people who take – who value other things instead. And so, I you know, I think that this can get – this can acquire weird class implications on both sides, but honestly, there are, I think – just genuine individual differences in people who made it a priority to pay off their debt and therefore would be less helped by a debt amnesty and people who did not, which is why I kind of see free college as the detente position there, right? Like, yes, we accept that A, the student loan crisis is squeezing entire generations of young adults. B, we accept that treating existing student debt burden as something that we can just take away is going to have— you know. Is, is going to be received poorly by the people who have already made life choices to minimize their debt burden, why don't we take away that entire pinching calculus and just prospectively fix the problem? Wait, but
2: that's why I think the inclusion of graduate schools and private universities in the debt relief plans are little. Odd, Because what you have on the tuition side, actually, despite the Democrats yelling at each other, there's a fair degree of consensus that like moving forward, there should be a free tier of college, right? And then there should be a kind of a paid luxury tier of college. And what the Democrats are arguing about, if you look at like Bernie on one side and Biden on the other and and the rest somewhere in the middle, is where do you draw the line between those tiers? So like Biden is saying community college should be free. And everything other than community college is, in a sense, in the luxury tier, uh, whereas Sanders is saying all public colleges and universities should be in the free tier and it's private schools that should be in the luxury tier. And that's an important disagreement. Like, that's not a trivial disagreement. But there's also a, a conceptual kind of similarity there, right? What we don't have from anybody is like a how should we rethink graduate school programs. Right, And it seems like common sense is that you would want to draw some kind of distinction between them, right? That if you want to say, look, as a society, we need to have medical doctors and particularly if we're going to have, as left pe- people want, like a Medicare for all program where we're going to be controlling their salaries, that like maybe medical training should be free, right? Or it should be free but conditional. Like your education is free, but you now have to go do X. Just like the military service academies are free, because the idea is that like we we want people to go to West Point. We need military right. Officers, or on right? the
3: other hand, the kind of like public service uh, loan forgiveness plans that certain elite law schools have, where like we're you're going to incur the same debt burden as everybody else, but if you subsequently choose to go into public service occupations, we will asterisk, 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 force you to pay less money to right. And the government could try to do that. They could try to say, look, we are going to say
2: law schools in some cases are like this is a training program for the lawyers the government needs, some, some class of public servants. But that like if you want to go uh, work at like a big law firm that just like helps giant companies sue each other, like we, you don't need to do that at public expense, like it's like you go do that if you want to do that, right? But that's not like the public interest. And then again, you have a lot of master's degrees in education, right? So people need those to go be teachers, right? And it's maybe crazy to make people go into debt to then go work for the government, right? And we should say like, are these programs valuable, right? Like if they're if they're really useful and they help people teach children better, then they should be free because we should want people to do it. And if they're not valuable, like we should get rid of them. But, like, there's no reason that should be just, like, on your dime or we're going to go back and, and collect loans. But either way, like, you you just, like, you would need to think about it, right? Like, what are, we, what are we doing with these things? Because the whole impetus behind the free college concept, whether it's for all public schools or just for community colleges or whatever, is to say, like, yes, we think more people should be going to college, right? Like, otherwise, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it's not at all clear to me that, like, Anybody believes that what America needs is drastically more law school graduates. I mean, maybe they do, right? But like, that's that's something you should put on the table. Like, is it a crisis in America that people are struggling to go become lawyers? Because I don't, I don't buy that it is.
3: I mean, I think the thing is that a lot of people approach this debate not as social engineers, but as assuming, I, you know, this is actually the the a debate where a lot of people do assume that there are going to be unintended consequences as Uh people continue to try to distinguish themselves in a market. And so people look at the kind of the rising number of people with bachelor's degrees, but especially the rising number of jobs that require bachelor's degrees, even for, you know, tasks where a bachelor's—where a four-year liberal arts degree may not have necessarily prepared you for those tasks, and go, okay, if we're going to continue to normalize this, then logically a graduate degree might be the next way to distinguish that you truly are educationally elite. Like, of the—of my high school graduating class, the kind of conventional wisdom was you didn't take out loans to go to undergrad. You got the—you <laughs> went to the best—yeah, no, 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 it's—I'm not—I'm not endorsing this. The conventional wisdom, is making an amusing The conventional wisdom was adjuster. you got into the best school that you could, like, pay your—that, like, you could pay most of your way through, and then you could—you and your parents could talk about, like, paying for your graduate degree. And Ooh, I don't right. really know—I'm not— <laughs> Like, it it, wasn't—I don't really know where that came from, but it was an absolute article of faith among the people who were— astounded that I was going to such an expensive undergrad school.
2: I came up among the um, humble people of Manhattan, and I don't, no, I don't no, feel that this no, was I the think, wisdom around there. No, I, I don't
3: I don't think that this is—I'm I, I, not saying that this is, like, something that everyone in America is yeah. growing up with, but I do think it was the reaction to, okay, a lot of people are going to college. I want to make sure that, I'm, that my kid is going to succeed in a crowded educational market. I know that college d- doesn't necessarily prepare my kid for a career, and, like, I'm a little bit worried about— right. Sending my kid to a four-year liberal arts school where they're going to come out with a degree in English. I don't know what that does for them. Let's hold off and see if they actually, subsequent to that, do something that is going to give them an edge in the market. That sounds like
2: a nice lead-in for a white paper about choice of college majors.
3: Although it does kind of like – it does mean that we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about what is college for, although I guess we can now do that. (laughs) Right. Well, what what is college for? (laughs)
1: Providing a well-rounded educational experience and preparing you to deal with human beings outside of the human beings you went to high school with. (laughs) I like it. That's what college was for me. It was basically like, oh... This is what other people are like.
3: No, I think, I mean, I think that this is kind of the uh, appealing much more to us than even to most members of the Weeds audience, much less the general public. But I think the question of how does the idea of free college change the calculus of do you want to go to school with the people, to college with the people you went to high school with or not is something that, you
1: know, we didn't get into international examples. But part of the argument in New Zealand and a couple of other countries that have had, you know, New Zealand, I think at one time had fees free college as okay. they refer to it um but now they do not um and now it you you attending university is subsidized in some ways but they kind of changed that and part of the argument was that when college became free people were going who weren't taking it s- as seriously and i don't know i think that i mean granted i feel as if that argument is perhaps somewhat flawed, the idea that, like, if it's free, you won't care as much? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the ship's already
3: a little bit sailed on that, on the idea that college is something that, like, that if you're not going to a four-year college as a middle-class kid, that you've screwed something up. Like, you've already priced that in. It's it's something that you're expected to do, and then the question of how do you pay for it has become separate, which I think is, you know, gets back to what we were saying earlier about if those two things have become separate, how do you make it so that you're not putting, you know, so that you're not making this a, like, funny money market where people end up sed- saddled with debt. De- right. De- but de- this, so this de- is a kind
2: of dissonance, right? As far as I can tell, everybody I know and every politician thinks that maybe not everybody should go to college and that we should increase the prestige of technical programs and vocational education and we need good options for people who don't go to college. Like, that's something absolutely everybody agrees with. And then nobody um, raises their own children as if that's something— that they yes. believe. Right. Like I I have never met a college graduate working in politics and journalism who has children and tells me that their message to those children to, like, their own children is that actually there's really good uh, money to be made in HVAC repair, and you should go focus on that, even though it's an observation that everybody makes when they, like, think about... It's
3: almost like social class and the new economic status universe. are Ooh. not, in fact, the same thing.
2: <laughs> Ooh, wow. Big one. Um Okay, so I, I think we are not going to uh, solve these, these deeper mysteries, uh, so it take another break second, like and get into <laughs> some exciting empirical
0: information.
2: Okay. So our white paper today, nicely working into a theme. It is by Carolyn Sloan, Eric Hurst, and Dan Black. It is called A Cross-Cohort Analysis of Human Capital Specialization and the College Gender Wage Gap. Uh, So this is basically, um, there is a lot of research on the question of why women earn less money than men. Uh, There are a lot of different ways to look at this. Uh, One way that you can look at it is you try to decompose the causal elements of this. Uh, And so it's well known that one reason women get paid less than men is that different occupations have different wage scales in general, and that women on average are in lower wage occupations rather than making less money relative to other people doing the same work. Uh, so that's something we've known forever, that there's a lot of stuff that looks at it. Thanks to a change in what is que- what questions they ask on the American Community Survey, these researchers are now able to look at... What do people major in in college? Uh, Because college major choices are related to occupational choices, although not identical to them. And they find that women select into college majors that are associated with lower earnings and that you can sort of actually see this separately from occupational choice, that both have independent causal impacts when you look at the regression coefficients. Uh, But then they also find that this gap has narrowed over time, uh, which is an interesting finding. It hasn't closed, but there is a marked tendency toward a narrowing, toward in particular more women getting into biology and life sciences degrees which pay pretty well and somewhat fewer into sort of the like core useless liberal arts kind of zone. Um, And then they find actually not that much change in education and engineering, which are like two major topics that people talk about a lot. And there's a big, I mean, they you know, getting this correct, there's a large sort of percentage-wise increase in the number of women getting engineering degrees, but it's from such a low base that it's not actually a, a big compositional change. Then the, I don't know. There's a lot of other stuff yeah, in here. Yeah, I mean, there but, are, but those there are, are about like the broad twenty like Im-
3: more more granular empirical papers I want to see come out of this, including yeah. what the hell is going on in engineering because yeah, like that's a, it's it's a large percentage rise, but it's still in the cohort of people born. Around 1990, which is the most recent birth cohort in this paper, which is people who graduated in roughly 2012, you're still looking at a little over one-fifth as many women with engineering degrees as men, which given that at that point you have like 1.5 as many uh, women with biology degrees as men, that is a wild gap. And I, I definitely want to see this the follow-up paper on what the hell is going on in engineering. Um, but I think that in in general, there is there is so much data here that there really are a lot of like, oh, I wonder what is going on with that dynamic questions. But one thing that I think in the broader, what is it that leads women to to end up making less than men? One thing that they kind of end up demonstrating pretty conclusively is that the choice of occupation relative to major that, that has has narrowed even more than the kind of major wage gap itself, that especially younger women, younger women who are who have gone who have gotten majors that tend to lead to higher paying jobs, then tend to select slightly lower paying jobs than the men with the same major do, but that gap has narrowed a great deal. And that in particular, they're not. It's not that they're choosing jobs that pay less because they require fewer hours. There's there's one point in here where they demonstrate 3% of the wage gap, roughly, as they calibrate it, comes from women going into occupations where fewer hours are required and therefore they end up making less money. 10% comes from just differences in per hour wage among occupations that people choose. So whatever is leading women to go into occupations that end up paying less than the men with those same majors have, right. it's not that they want to work fewer hours or it's, it's not that they're choosing jobs where fewer hours are required, which obliquely gets at one of the other explanations that's offered for the wage gap is that women just want to have less demanding jobs because they're going to end up taking more time taking care of kids.
1: Right. Because I think that that you know, as someone who majored in useless liberal arts things, I was a history of political science major because I wanted to write a thesis about Nazis, like every girl dreams of doing. History
2: um, is a traditionally male dominated uh, major, which has been moving toward parity in the most recent birth cohorts. Yet as one we of the other paper. one of the
3: other follow up papers trend, I want to see, Jane. hooray! One of the other follow up papers I want to see out of this is they don't look at they look at how much you could have expected to earn based on 2014 to 2017. I would love to see a version of this that goes into how much could you expect to earn with a history degree when you were getting the history degree in 1970 versus in 2000.
1: Right. And especially because I think that, you know, as Dara pointed out, as children or adults of the Great Recession, you know, the idea when people, when I was a freshman, I decided to double major, I believe I thought I was going to go to law school, but whatever it was, it was just like, ah, yes, this will assure, the political science major specifically, will assure that I can make a great deal of money in the, because people need political scientists. We've all said there's a dearth of political scientists in the world. But you know, what that meant in two, even if for going from two thousand and five to two thousand and nine You I was a freshman you I was a senior, th- during that period, there's a si- significant economic tumult. But I do think that I would love more information like the I think that the idea that the wage gap is somehow, in you know it becomes this thing about like how it's somehow women's fault because of the choices that they are making. And you know, that you may, you know, well, you made the decision to major in psychology and you should have known better when I think a lot of people are thinking who do this. And I remember having these conversations in college of like, well, I could become a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and that seems like a job where you make a great deal of money per what we knew in 2005. I mean, I do want to disaggregate this
3: a little because I think that this does lend a little credence to one of the choice critiques of the wage gap. Like, I, th- I think that it definitely blows up the idea that women simply aren't interested in lucrative feel. And like in it, like that women's that women's brains are different to put it extremely crudely, right? right. They just don't have the kind of desire to learn about the sorts of things that will help them make money down the road, it does lend a little bit of credence to the idea that whatever choices women are making in both their kind of college and post-college careers, that making money may not be their highest priority, that that might explain some of the reason that, like, a woman with an engineering degree is going to—it tends to go into occupations that pay less well than men with engineering degrees— That's not dispositively proven by this paper, and the kind of the critique of that tends to be, okay, what is it that makes a woman who has demonstrated an interest in these same issues less likely to go into those occupations? Is it really a choice that she is making, or is this being constrained either by, you know, hiring discrimination, by – household expectations that are going to lead her to choose a job that is going to be less demanding because she knows she won't be able to, you know, even if if she's not working fewer hours, she knows she won't be able to do a job that requires travel on a dime, that kind of thing. Right. Or how much of it genuinely is that, like, people have different values and it's okay, you know, to choose a job that is not going to make quite as much money as another job you might take. I
2: mean, one reason why I think looking at the college of majors is interesting is because I think the kinds of people who are likely to care about the gender wage gap or to, uh, like, work in politics and journalism are exactly the kind of people who I think are likely to sympathize with the desire to major in fine arts rather than major in business you know or or engineering yeah. right that it's like it, it's a little bit different from like oh they're like they're choosing these like low paying jobs cuz it's like all three of us on this podcast of of all uh gender identities chose humanities majors in college. Hey, hey, um, hey, hey.
3: Political science is straight up social science. Anthropology mm, is arguably social science. Arguably. Um, you know, it's like uh,
2: I find that to be a very understandable and in fact defensive a life choice. And if somebody told me my only criteria in picking my college major is I looked up this data about expected median earnings so far, I'd be like, well, I don't know, man. Like maybe Maybe think a little harder about that choice. Like I, I it's it's certainly not obvious to me that everybody should pick the college major with the highest expected earnings and like it's it's totally fine. See, I uh, read this
3: a little bit differently. I read this as like, frankly, I don't know I I'm I'm not sure that I can name anyone I've been acquainted with who has a degree in fine arts, quote unquote. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of us who think of ourselves as like softer skills, you know. I need to generally, introduce you to many members of my family. Fair enough.
4: <laughs> Art um, history, but like, but, you fine know, arts majors. But there's a lot of
3: like there's there's a large swath of majors that aren't really that aren't tracked in this paper because when you're dealing with detailed major data, you can't necessarily track like 200 categories and have it be a legible chart. But I want to see what this data looks like for English majors, for political science majors, for people who could persuade themselves that they were getting conventional liberal arts degrees that would help train them intellectually for a wide range of of topics, which is how English degrees are sold everywhere. It's how, you know, history is the one thing in here that I think is really sold in that way. And I do think it would be interesting to know for those people who like – it's not that they're picking a a major that's going to dictate a specific career to them, but they're not picking a major that is going to cause everyone they know to roll their eyes and go, what the hell – you know, what the hell are you even learning? What does that mean for what jobs they ultimately choose?
2: Right, but I mean I think one reason we don't see those majors on these charts is that those are not the majors that have a huge – gender scale, right, right right right. um, whereas like you know, I mean, it's true not that many people well did it over nineteen fifty to nineteen
3: ninety. I would love to see what right. like computer science looks like. But so
2: like, well, I think that I assume that's rolled in with the engineering, maybe. I mean, at any rate, so it's like foreign language degrees, which are obviously not that common in the universe, but it's almost triple the number of women as men who are there doing that. It's both understandable that if triple the number of women as men get foreign language majors, they are probably going to end up making less money than if they'd become engineers. But also, it doesn't seem to me like an unreasonable thing to do to study foreign language in college? But but this is also
3: why I'd want to see, like, I want to see foreign language versus linguistics, which in 1950, uh a linguistics degree was probably about as useful as a a degree in a particular foreign language, (laughs) if a little bit less so. At this point, you know, linguistics is offering some of the exact same skills that Computer science degrees are offering in terms of like giving yourself an understanding of structure and logic. And so it would, you know, this is this is this is why I want to see, you know, I'm not saying I would read this book. (laughs) I would need it to be a little bit more compellingly written for me to read this book, no offense to the authors, but there is a book here, for sure.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, especially because you note like the shifting context of what these jobs and industries met. Like, computer science used to be women's work Mm -hmm. in the 1950s and 1960s because it was, like, correlating And or it was viewed as being that, and then suddenly computer science becomes associated with dudes wearing glasses, and suddenly it's a very expensive, very high-level field. And so it would be, you know, I think that looking at those age cohorts more specifically would be really interesting. I mean, my mom really wanted me to become a classics professor, and so, you know, me getting into like Nazis was a bit of a disappointment. So I do understand the, you it know. Wasn't
2: Indiana Jones a classicist who also battled Nazis?
1: Yeah, but it turns out as No, everyone, actually, no. Indiana <laughs> Jones' appointment was in anthropology. Thank you very much. Okay. And it also okay. turns out that that's not what archaeology looks like. Ah. The great disappointment of my life. But, you know, this entire idea of, like, what you go into college thinking about It's such an individual decision that it's really hard to extrapolate more widely. Because I just remember thinking, like, I don't want to be a classics professor at Oberlin. That sounds terrible. No offense to the classics professors at Oberlin who are for sure Weed's listeners. But, you know, the entire idea was like, oh, I'll do this. I can write about Nazis as much as I want. And then somehow some entity will hire me for the big money and I'll be fine. And it, it's just interesting to think so about— So it's lucky
2: for you that Nazis have made sort of a comeback in American society.
1: I did not root for that, to be <laughs> clear. Was not hoping for that. I really, you know—though it has really reduced the number of people who asked why I wrote my thesis on that subject.
3: Yeah. Um. I mean, right. As we were discussing earlier in the episode, a lot of this comes from are you of a social class where it's assumed that you're going to get a four-year degree and the only question is what you get it in. Yeah. A lot of it comes from to what extent are you choosing a college versus— where you are going to college is assumed and the choice you can make to maximize your earning potential or whatever is choosing a major you know to what extent is it is it do you see college as preparation for the job market or do you see college as preparation for adulthood right. and until those things until that kind of final tension is resolved especially with regards to four year college you're always going to have people who are going to say why should we give free college a lot of people don't You know, it's not necessarily going to help people maximize their earning potential. It's just going to help a bunch of 18 to 22-year-old kids goof off because there is a critical mass of people who see college as a way to launch teenagers into adulthood rather than as a way to turn, you know, earning machines at a 0.8 level into earning machines at a 3.2 level. Right. And with (laughs) that— Take, take your earnings. And, uh,
2: well, you don't need any earnings uh, to, to, to listen to the Weeds or to tell your friends all about the Weeds or to come. You do need some earnings to come to the <laughs> yes. Weeds live show at December 18th at the Sixth and I Synagogue. Uh, so we would love to uh, help Sixth and I take some of those earnings off your hands. You will learn valuable things that uh, will help you both in life, probably in the labor market if you live here in Washington. Uh, so ch- check it out. Um, so thanks uh, as, as always to um, to our sponsors, to Malachi Brodus, our engineer here, to Jackson Bierfeld our producer, and The Weeds will be back on Friday.